This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. From the Wangaratta Jazz Festival to Dark Mofo, a lot of music festivals are shutting up shop. Whether it be the high cost of running them, trying to navigate wild weather conditions, to the lack of staff and general support due to what many call a mass exodus during the pandemic. So what do we stand to lose if more of these festivals shut down? Is it cultural enrichment? Jobs? Tourism, in particular to small regional communities. Are music festivals important and what's at stake if they're cancelled? Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, joining you from Festival Mecca, almost, Daniel Miles <laughs> from ABC Warrnambool. Spend a lot of your time in Port Ferry. Music festivals are so important, in particular to regional areas, if they fall away, Daniel, it's more than just that weekend of music. Yeah, g'day, Rish. I'm loving this chat because I am, at heart, a 90s grunge-loving kid. So things like big day out festivals, mm-hmm. they were some of the seminal moments of my life growing up. You know, standing in a mosh pit or amongst your friends, just watching a band with your mouth agape because it's just it's hitting you on a different level. They were moments that really... I don't know, I found them really defining moments for me. And I secretly and not so secretly even pine for its return, Big Day Out. But there are, you know, there are a limited number of these festivals that remain. You've got your Falls, your Meredith and your Golden Plains. But as you sort of mentioned, what happens when some of those smaller players that don't have that level of funding that the big players do leave town for red tape reasons, for cultural reasons? It leaves a bit of a gap, not only for those like us who love going to festivals, but also the people who that's their bread and butter. That's what they do for a living is setting up these festivals. Like, as you mentioned, Port Ferry Folk Festival is brilliant, not only for the town, but for the amount of people that come in and the tourism dollar. It's almost like a a second Christmas for us in Mm. Port Ferry because the actual town gets so excited by it. But then just down the road, there's a music festival in MacArthur, Music in the Vines, that's had to shut up shop for the same reason that a number of these small festivals have. And I guess you really lose something, especially in those tiny regional communities that are built around music and coming together. When we don't have that chance again, what happens? And, I mean, when you say Port Ferry, you you think the music festival. When you think Mm -hmm. Wangaratta, you think jazz. So when they start to become too hard, too expensive to put on, or when you don't have the experience, because it takes... It's sometimes an entire year in order to be able to stage that weekend or that week-long mm-hmm. festival or what that night or whatever it may be. So what is the future of music festivals? Maybe you work in the sector, maybe you stepped away. Why are they becoming too hard to put on? Hopefully, is there a silver lining? Will we start to see smaller little day festivals pop up? How important is a music festival to where you live? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warnable, where we talk about the future of music festivals. You're on the Conversation Hour, Rochelle Hunt and Daniel Miles with you as we talk the future of festivals. When I read, Dan, mm-hmm. that the Wangaratta Jazz Festival was stopping, <laughs> yeah. I was really sad, and yet I've never been. But for whatever reason, <laughs> it it just 
feels like an institution and mm. something that that region and the surrounding regions would love and rely on so much. And it's part of a town like Wangaratta's cultural identity. When you think of Wangaratta, you think jazz music because it's been around since the 1990s. And it's something that I know the town really prides itself on. And I'm the same as you. When I heard the news, I'd never been but there was just this sense of longing for something that I'd never experienced. And now I'm thinking, how did I not make that happen? But it's it's something that really sticks in the heart of anyone that not only lives in Wangaratta, but has been to that festival as well. One of those people who knows it better than you and I, because she's been there for one, is Andra Jackson, a freelance journalist and co-author of the Wangaratta Festival of Jazz and Blues, 30 years. Andra... Good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the Conversation Hour. First Hello. of all, how did you feel when the news came about that the uh, the festival was going to be no more? Oh, I, I actually felt really sad. It wasn't surprising because the festival had been struggling for a few years since, uh, well, even before COVID, but particularly with COVID. Um, but the festival had so much going for it both for the musicians, the town and audiences. And so it's very hard to let it go. And um, it remains to be seen um, whether there'll be an effort to revive it, maybe Mm. in another form, maybe at another date. What makes it hard? You said even pre-COVID it was struggling. And, I mean, a part of today's program is the fact that this is not just the Wangaratta Jazz Festival that we're talking about. This paints a bigger picture across the state of what's making it difficult. What was making it hard? Well, the first thing was it's very difficult to attract sponsorship. And for many years, Wangaratta had the uh, sponsorship of the TAC and that was an enormous benefit to the festival. And after they lost that, the the TAC decided to invest its funds elsewhere. Uh, It was hard to attract similar sponsorship and really that's where the role of uh, government becomes so important. You know, funds that are available from the... Uh, what what used to be the Australia Arts Council, it's it's now it's Australia Creative and also Creative Victoria. Um, they really need to be able to uh, step in and make sure these festivals are viable. And of course, the other avenue of support is um, through donations. And it's very hard for a small country town. Um, especially after something like COVID, Mm. um, to appeal for funds. But the other uh, problem that's plagued at the Wangaratta Jazz Festival on and off is flooding. Um, A couple of times there's been flooding right on the doorstep of the festival. And so that's very expensive, making alternative arrangements that ensure the festival can still go ahead um, safely. Yeah, and there's been lots of towns that, whether it be the impacts, I mean, look at Gippsland at the moment, the impacts of, of fire and of flood and what that does to that particular festival. Andrew, stay with us. Francis has called through. Morning, Francis. How are you going? Good. What did you want to say? Well, I run the uh, Scar Nation Music Festival, uh, which this year is going to be held in Colac uh, in southwest Victoria. We were holding the festival out at Warrion, which is about 20 minutes north of Colac. And and our biggest problem with running music festivals, and I've been doing it for about 15 years at various locations, um, is 
both staffing now, after the pandemic, staffing has been in incredibly difficult to get people um, to fill the roles that need to be filled. And the other thing is um, local government red tape and, and yeah, the hoops right. you have mm. to jump through. So uh, what sort of staff... I mean, we're actually going to speak to Crew Care a little later in the program and they are singing the exact same song as you, Francis. Like, where are the gaps in terms of staffing? What are the positions that you can't fill? It's across the board. It's from our production staff through to our front of house, um, bar staff. It's, it's, it's across the board more difficult now than it ever has been um, to staff the festival, essentially. Uh, we had to cancel last year's festival um, because our headliner pulled out and which made the rest of the festival wow. mm. untenable. Um, this year, looks like it's all going ahead, fingers crossed, but the staffing issue, coupled with the insurance that's required, is, is making it incredibly difficult. And Francis, what's the flow-on effect? You've been in this for 15 years, you said. These are opportunities at these smaller festivals are where festival directors and people who want to put on these kind of shows cut their teeth and get the chance. No one walks into a, into a Falls or a Meredith. What's going to be the flow-on effect if some of these smaller festivals don't go ahead for the, you know, the ongoing future of festivals in Australia and some of those big festivals too? Well, it's where uh, artists, production staff, promoters cut their teeth and move on to these bigger festivals or create these bigger festivals. Um, the bigger festivals, uh, you know, didn't start big necessarily. The False Festival started as a backyard party. The Meredith Festival started as a backyard party. And they grew and grew and, and people with the necessary skills come in. The talent, giving uh, young artists a, a shot at that level is easier than putting them on the big stage at, mm. at Blues Fest or something like that. I wonder if that's a part of you, almost the victim of your own success too, that music festivals were expected to be big and they did get too big. And I'm hoping, Francis, that the silver lining here might be that smaller events are on and so that places like the beautiful town of Colac can run a festival as well. We wish you all the best, mate. Thank you so much. This message that says music festivals are a rite of passage for youngsters. Mm -hmm. It would be a massive shame for them to miss out into the future. And another that says festivals over several days have just become too expensive for a lot of people. Large costs for tickets, there's travel, there's accommodation and food. One-day events are the way to go. That's Helen in Geelong. So just finally, Andrew, when we talk about the Wangaratta Jazz Festival and what it means for the town and that community, should it have been saved? Is this something that a lot of people's livelihoods are at stake here? Well, I think there is some effort to look at the possibility of running another festival, as I said, maybe at a different time, because one of the uh, problems for Wangaratta is that the Melbourne International Jazz Festival, which used to be earlier in the year, moved to within a week of um, finishing at, at um, Wangaratta's um, doorstep, so to speak. And for a lot of people, just to go to Wangaratta is a big expense because you're paying for accommodation, food over the weekend. And so people save for that. And to have a festival that's spread in Melbourne a week beforehand over that entire week where you're buying individual tickets, a lot of people just can't afford that. Andra, thank you so much for your time this morning. There's a, a cultural hole that's been left in the Wangaratta um, art scene calendar and we appreciate you uh, giving us your expertise. Okay, thank you.
That was Andrew Jackson, freelance journalist and co-author of the Wangaratta Festival and Jazz Blues 30 Years novel. Rish, it's a really important discussion about the future of festivals yeah. and what happens when we do lose these. And I wonder how much of it is about timing. So we have mm. festivals in regional areas. We have festivals in Melbourne. We have there's the Wangaratta Jazz Festival. There's also the Melbourne Jazz Festival. And there were some complaints that maybe those two festivals were too close or that didn't work in conjunction with each other. We saw very similar conversations happening around the Melbourne Writers Festival and the Bendigo Writers Festival. So looking at scheduling and maybe pooling resources to be able to maybe weather some of those costs mm. And working with each other and not against each other as well. This message, the Inverloch Jazz Festival has a community parade at the opening. All local organisations join in, the school, the kinder as well. It's fantastic and inclusive. I'm not a fan of jazz, but it brings a festival vibe to the town and that is infectious. So what's the future of festivals? If you work in the sector, if you live in a town that has one, how important are they to you? Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Daniel Miles joining you from ABC Warrnambool. As we talk about festivals, this, it says festivals, they're expensive, yet they're run by volunteers. So who's making the money? Is it that someone is greedy? And that's something that we haven't touched on yet, Daniel, is the Mm. plethora of volunteers as well as qualified staff it takes to put some of these events on. Yeah, Port Ferry Folk Festival is a really good example of that. There's a band of volunteers that turn a couple of cricket grounds in the middle of March into something that is incredible that you don't see all year round. And that's where these small town things are really good because they not only provide benefit to these communities, but they also bring the townspeople together. Anne's given us a call. She's on the road. Good morning, Anne. What would you like to say? Oh, good morning. Um, love your show. Um, we've just come up from Venus Bay in um, down near the prom up to Mildura. It's our second year to the Country Music Festival. We norm- we go to most blues festivals, but I just thought I'd, I'd like to just add two things. Uh, we stayed in a... We're, we're caravanners, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we stayed in a caravan park, so that cost us $700. Wow. And... But... So... But it's free. All the events are free, but they expect you, if you go and see an event at a at a cafe that you buy a meal and have a few drinks. That's the thing. It's the the flow-on effects that all of the businesses, they know, as Daniel said at the beginning of the show, it's it's your second Christmas. You're sort of guaranteed a crowd, aren't you, Anne? Well, yes, but it's an... I mean, the thing with jazz and the thing with um, country, we are an older demographics, let's be honest. Um... Because you you just know. I mean, we're blues people, and if you go to a Chuka Blues Festival, you know it, it's a totally different age group. Mm. It's it's you know you've got the forty to fifties, and then the fifties and sixties. But at a, a country one like Mildura the demographics are definitely over the well over the sixties. Oh, there's something I feel quite jealous of your lifestyle right about now and talking about you know, just being in a caravan and heading out and going to beautiful sunny Mildura and, and being a, a part of the music festival. What a great lifestyle. And so that's what you potentially stand to lose. Yeah, that's glorious from Anne. Debbie's also given us a call on 1300 772 Debbie, what would you like to say? Hello, we live in Bowen Heads and for the Wangaratta Jazz and Blues Festival, we would travel up to... Um, Painters Island Caravan Park and stay over the weekend 
and that place you could ride your bike so that if you went to one of the events, you'd have a couple of drinks and you didn't need to worry about driving home. I don't know that I would say the Blues was necessarily the, the oldest group of people, cohort of people that went. We, we used to go to the Pinston Hotel when we first walked in there. And it's a few years ago, so we're as grey as they were then. But there was like a, a big room full of grey-haired people and it was just really fantastic to experience something that wasn't like overtly loud. It was just, I don't know, yeah. if you appreciated music. Do you think, Debbie, wonderful. there's a message here from Kate who's in Wangaratta and she says, dare I say it, but the demographic of jazz listeners was ageing and therefore it was dwindling. There were some free yeah. elements of the festival that attracted younger folk and families, but they were withdrawn over the years. It just wasn't a broad enough pool of attendees to keep it viable. Would you agree with Kate? Yes, yes I do. I do. Um, because, like last year we went, had to stay at a different caravan park because of the flooding. That caravan park was great as well. But um, there were no, there were no real jazz venues. The, yeah. the Pinson Hotel wasn't available. There really wasn't a lot of catering for the jazz, to say. The Blues were at the high school, which wasn't within walking distance. Every, everybody had to drive. The demographics, yes, have definitely changed. Mm. And Debbie, it just really talks to how difficult it can be trying to cater for so many audiences with these festivals as well, which is something that we see right across the board here in regional Victoria. Thanks for giving us a call. And there's been multiple sort of points to how flooding and weather impacts festival areas. Mm -hmm. And we know, well, Rochester is still heavily impacted by flooding, but they're putting on an event and a, a sort of a weekend-based event on the 14th of October. It's called Rochella, and that's all, all... I know, the best name ever, absolutely. <laughs> and it's all about raising money for flood recovery. So then, you know, there's times when festivals pop up and do something in a one-off to try and help people. So if you want to head down to Rochester and help people, you can on October the 14th. Uh, to help the people and the locals of Rochester. But Dr Catherine Strong is an Associate Professor in the Music Industry Program at RMIT University. And right back at the beginning of the pandemic, Catherine, you started to look into the impact of the music industry in general, but in particular the festival circuit. It just simply hasn't recovered. Is it as simple as that? Uh, I think there are a whole bunch of things going on. All of the things you've been talking about are so important in understanding what's happening here. Um, but definitely COVID has, has played a big part. Um, as uh, one of your previous people you're speaking to was talking about the the, the uh, disappearance of talent across the board in terms of people who play a number of different roles within the music industry, getting enough staff, getting people who can do the tech uh, behind the scenes, all of those sorts of things, that, that definitely hasn't come back. Um, but I think that the biggest thing that people are still coming up against and not quite knowing what to do about is just the continuing atmosphere of uncertainty uh, in the music industry across the board mm. um, in terms of like uh, unpredictable weather, uh, the, the just um, uh, even as people were saying like artists pulling out, artists not quite having their own touring schedules and their understanding of what the industry looks like. 
back fully in place yet. So, so there's so much uncertainty. And with something like a festival where you have, um, especially the big festivals where there's a lot of money at stake, there are so many different moving parts that you have to have in place to make sure that it is going to be successful. Um, sometimes it is it is just becoming a it, it's it's too hard. People are there's too much risk, and it's it's easier to pull the pin or or to keep things uh, in abeyance for a while. Catherine Strong, it almost feels like a bit of a Sisyphus situation where it's all becoming a little bit too hard. We're hearing from so many people that are running festivals like this on the text line from Kate in Malden. We've run the Goldfields Geth Gothic for two years in Malden but decided not to continue. It's been popular and it's different to what's about, but the workload, Mm. the reliance on volunteers and financial risk. We get a small amount of funding from the local council and the community bank but need to get the ability to pay admin support, relying solely on volunteers isn't feasible. Well, we actually decided to give Kate a call to try and figure out a little bit more about that. Kate, we've just read out your message and we really felt compelled to give you a buzz. So we're so sorry that you haven't felt like you could continue this particular festival. Has it all just got too hard? Hi, Rochelle. Um, It has. It has just, it's just too hard. I mean, I've not, I'm not the person who's borne the um, brunt of the workload. Um, the wonderful Valentina Tansley, who might be out there listening, is the person who's been the artistic director and, and who's driven it. But she works full time. And um, while a whole lot of us pile in to help, there's just not enough people. I mean, we're a small population, we're an ageing population just like everywhere, everywhere else, um, relying on volunteers just makes it impossible. So what, what we tried to do this year was to um, find funding to pay some admin support for even three months in the lead-up, but we just couldn't do it. So the festival's been popular. It's different to what's out there. It runs in winter in the f- first week in August. Um, so there's not a lot around. It's not competing with a lot. It has music. It has writers. It has ghost tours it has all sorts of stuff <laughs> it's it's fun it's really yeah. good fun mm. and it's different and what i and one of the things i love about it is for kids who grow up around here who don't fit into the kind of indie rock mold and don't fit into the footy club footy netball club mold they've kind of looked at this and gone oh my god there's something for me this is different which has been brilliant and but- that's what festivals can be they can be super niche can't they yeah absolutely and they there's something that also give towns and people an identity. If you don't fit in with the footy crowd or the indie rock crowd, as we heard from Kate there, it gives people a, a sense of belonging and attachment to something. Um, Dr Catherine Strong, Associate Professor in the Music Industry Program at RMIT University, you're still with us. Tell us what happens to towns when they do lose these festivals? Uh, if there is a really big influx of tourists around these festivals, um, it definitely can have a serious flow-on effect for uh, businesses. Um, I think it will be really interesting to watch what happens in Hobart over the next little while um, with the loss of Dark Mofo this coming winter. Um, I mean, Tasmania, uh, Hobart is a very interesting example. I mean, the uh, Mona Art Gallery, of course, has been very central to bringing more tourists into that city. Uh, but these two major festivals they've been running, so the one in summer and then the, the Dark Mofo in winter, have been attached to huge increases in, in tourist numbers and all of the flow and effects that come with that for small businesses, uh, for larger businesses, for transport, everything. Mm. Um, I think everybody is going to be watching very closely to see what impact not having Dark Mofo this year is going to have in in Hobart. Is it because we just have too many? I mean, the government can't bail out 
every festival that can't make it work year after year. Things have got too expensive for lots of different industries and we saw lots of industries that became casualties throughout the pandemic. Was there just too many festivals potentially, Catherine? Yeah, look, possibly. Um, I think that we did see a trend over the last sort of 10 to 15 years where there was a move away from the really, really big festivals that travel, something like the Big Day Out that went all around the country and even to New Zealand and other places um, that was sort of a catch-all type festival where there were different sort of music types within the sort of rock and popular music genre um, that would bring in these massive crowds and then there was this uh, diversification that happened where you did get more and more niche festivals popping up for very specific types of music um, sometimes in very uh, unique locations where the numbers would be restricted in some cases so you, you couldn't even have that many people um, and yes there, there is a point at which there are going to be too many of those to sustain all of them and you're going to see a whistling away of, of, of some of those whether what we're seeing now is, is something about changing audience habits where people are more interested in certain types of festivals, certain types of locations and that's just in a process of flux at the moment um, or whether we are see, seeing people sort of withdrawing from festivals for all of the reasons that have been mentioned, whether it's cost, too difficult to get places too much uncertainty um, it's, it's, it is, we, I think we are still in the post-COVID churn that means that the patterns are still being becoming emergent. Good to speak with you, Catherine. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Dr Catherine Strong there, Associate Professor in the Music Industry Program at RMIT. Some people are happy to see the backs of some of these festivals as well. There's a text here that says, I'm happy to see the back of the Falls Festival at Lawn. And our nearby property was used as a rubbish tip. Our driveway was defecated on. Patrons were driving up and down our road under the influence of drugs and alcohol. That's from Ian. We know that it causes big issues with housing and some people mm-hmm. not putting their homes onto the long-term rental market because they want to capitalise on week-long festivals. So we can have really negative impacts on some communities as well. This is a, a text that says festivals aren't just a year-long uh, artist events, but they're a year-long commitment. The most successful ones are deeper than the community outreach within these organisations. It's the schools, it's the service providers, and they reiterate their value and their potential for funders beyond just a few days of tourist income. Responsive, localised and sustainable festivals are the model for the future. So this is what we were sort of touching on before of, okay, if we start to see many of them shut down, that won't be the end. What will rise? You know, what will be done mm. done differently? And what can be sustained? I think that sustainable is one of the key words that we can take out of that conversation. Good morning, Ted. What would you like to say? Uh, good morning. I'm involved with um, the Newport Jazz Festival, uh, not the American one, the one just uh, over the bridge in Melbourne. Um, I'm a little bit surprised at some of the negativity about about festivals. Um, we run uh, entirely with volunteers, um, and I think we we are starting to discover a new audience for a jazz festival, and that is local people, young families with children. Um, well, that's what that text just said. That we need to almost there needs to be a new model, and it needs to be localized. Uh, well, I think I think that is that is a possibility. I've been involved with several different festivals over the years, and um, I have to say that all the research that I did indicated that um, we were looking at an older demographic, 
Uh, once we started running the uh, Newport Jazz Festival, uh, we discovered that local families were bringing their kids along and having a great time. So more about catering for the people that live in the suburb and the town as opposed to hoping for a huge influx on that weekend. So what's the future of music festivals? If you work in the sector, if you live in an area that's synonymous with a festival, are they important to you? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne, Daniel Miles, your co-host this morning, joining you from ABC Warnable. There's a long message here from Jo, who's in Montrose, but I'll just read you the beginning because I think she is bang on and it says, such a big conversation. We love going to music festivals, mainly folk, country and blues, but we see that you really need the whole town behind the event. Having local musicians as well helps. One local festival in Healesville has now stopped, mainly because the one main couple who were running it have retired and nobody else is prepared to take it on due to the pressures, the time and the bureaucracy. Mm. And that rings so true, doesn't it? That it can't just be two people or a handful of people it does need the entire town behind it but how possible is that and especially when like in that situation it's a real passion project for a couple that have been the driving force behind it have sustained it and have given so much back to the community but when push comes to shove and it's time for them to to take the next step there isn't someone there to take the reins uh someone who knows what it's like taking the reins has given us a call penny you're on the road good morning to you what would you like to say hi um Thank you for having me on. Funnily enough, one of my, uh, one of your colleagues earlier today interviewed an artist, an, an artist from our festival, which is the Port Fairy Spring Music Festival. We're on in a couple of weeks' time, uh, and uh, you mentioned the folk festival earlier on, uh, which of course is a fantastic festival for Port Fairy. Uh, but we're at the other time of the year, and I would say, having been chair of the festival for the last ten years, that you know the dynamic has changed massively uh, from before COVID to after COVID. So what's uh, changed? Well, we knew before that life was much more certain before COVID, Rochelle. Uh, we knew roughly how many tickets we would sell, how many people would go from Melbourne, how many people would be there from the surrounding community. And uh, COVID changed all of that. Audience confidence has not come back as we would have hoped and uh, costs are higher and uh, it is just uh, logistically harder because work practices have changed as well because of COVID. So many things have changed and uh, someone earlier mentioned this level of uncertainty uh, of just, you know, how do you get a business model that will be sustainable into the future? We're all still feeling our way around that, I think. Um, in a former life, I was head of Arts Victoria and you know, had some responsibility for the funding of regional festivals. And I just wonder what that business model looks mm. like now, Penny. You know, it's interesting because COVID, it did destroy the music industry on so many levels, and in particular the festival industry. But then we've also seen climate change and the pressures that that puts on everything like insurance. We've seen a mass exodus of those people, you know, leaving the festival circuit. Then you've got people that are moving to regional areas that maybe don't have that same commitment to a town. I just wonder what the future business model looks like, Daniel. Yeah, and how do we make it a sustainable model? So, like you said, we don't have... Uh, local governments having to prop up these smaller festivals and make them work. Elise has given us a call from Williamstown. Good morning, Elise. Oh, hi. Um, I just wanted to talk about my experience over in France in um, June and July this year. I went back with my dad. He's French and he lives in, or he's from Brittany. 
And when we were there, um, there was this whole series of music festivals that go on called Fête de la Musique. And it's a really standard, accepted part of French summer um, where every kind of little local town or little government area receives federal funding. So there's a real um, support of the arts that perhaps is a bit different to here. Um, and they um, they will have all different kinds of events. So, for example, I went to a few of them. The, the one in Paris was ginormous, big, famous stars, free concert. The ones in the town near my dad, um, there's one in the big town that's a very well-known Breton music festival that people travel all around the world to go to this Celtic music festival. But at the same time, the one in the local town is... At the start of the afternoon, you know, it's on a weekend day, everyone comes down, they bring picnics, families are there, there might be the little local school choir or school bands playing and then as the evening progresses, the more professional acts come on um, and everyone is able to participate and be there and there are these wonderful opportunities to come together. So and have then we made these... them too, too much of big business? Like, is everyone just trying to turn this into into their job, into their future. And, I mean, there's one here that says, the message that says they're great, but we've just got too many festivals. Mm, mm. And some of them even had this hybrid model, which I thought was great. I went to one in La Rochelle where they had some kind of big acts, a couple of international and local ones, kind of world music themed. They hessioned off where those big acts were playing um, and you could pay a kind of 20-euro ticket to go in. If you didn't pay, you couldn't see, but it was in their, their kind of big garden area, botanic gardens, and all the families and everyone could still sit around, enjoy the music and hear it, use the food trucks, go to the stalls. And it was this kind of mix no. of, yeah, it's a big thing. Yes, if you've paid, you can see it. But if not, you can just come down, have a picnic under the trees, hear the music, still, you know, um, make use of the stalls and, and the business kind of part of it that... Oh, I'm so jealous. Can we be friends, please? And just How hang Parisian out with you and your dad? does that sound? <laughs> oh, that just sounds so glorious. A spring festival in Paris. And I wonder, Rochelle, she makes an interesting point that there's a federal level of funding that shows how much that government from the top down really supports the arts. And, you know, we were speaking earlier, we know how much the arts and music delivers to Victoria just from a financial standpoint, more than sport. And we're saying this coming off a weekend of two grand finals. The trickle-down effect from the festivals and the decline is that those people who do make their bread and butter, not just the festival directors, but the crew, the musos, and, and everyone that helps set up and pack down these glorious tents and stages, are somehow just maybe not having as many financial mm. opportunities or work opportunities for them. Andrew McKinnon is the chairman of Crew Care, a non-for-profit which supports and advocates for workers in this field. Andrew, good morning to you. What have you seen over the last couple of years when it comes to festivals, particularly for those people that work in the sector? Yeah, so um, our experience is with uh, the our members that we represent is not specifically in festivals but across uh you know, commercialised festival work, uh, arena tours and stadium tours. Um, and we've just got our results from a poll that we put out to all live music crew. We've got about three or 400 respondents to that. And what we've found is there's quite a lot of blockages um, in pathways for career advancement for crew. Mm. Um, and it's right across the board. So um, Creative Victoria have uh, funded a training program that we've delivered in Victoria over the last two years. Uh, it's called the Weasel Ike Pathways to uh, Jobs in Live Music. And 
what we've done with that is we've targeted it at uh, students, so university students and unskilled workers that are already working in the industry. Um, it's a, quite a simple program. It's a couple of weeks uh, training at lighting, audio, various skill sets, and then they get 80 hours of funded um, wow, okay. work placement. Yeah, so and in the, the first year of it last year, 85% uh, of the people that went through it ended up with work in the live music industry. Um, we've had a great result again this year with the 20 students that we've had funded. Uh, we've finished the training aspect and we're That's going... That's so good to know because I know over the years, Andrew, when we've been touching base on this particular topic and also just how sort of forgotten the music and festival sector felt for a period of time throughout the pandemic. There was mm. what some people described as a mass exodus of experience, those who had decades yes. under their belt that just left and never returned. And as a result, who is mentoring? Who is passing on these skills? And because the question was around where do you get the skill if it's not on the job? So, but I mean, those numbers that you're talking about are small, but at least it's a step forward. Yeah, look, they are small uh, numbers there, Rochelle, but the but 85% of those people, that's not a small number. It's like it's a really small group of people. And the thing that we put into the program that seems to be the key to it, which is something we kind of added in afterwards, it wasn't necessarily there in the original design, was the mentoring aspect of it. So um, that's that's really kind of proved to be quite a powerful thing. Um, we've In the poll that we've just released, um, that, sorry, that we've just... Uh, haven't released any of this yet, um, but this is the kind of raw data in there. And what we're finding is that um, about 50% uh, of the people um, that work in the industry are getting their income from elsewhere um, as well. So it's not it's not always their primary job working in the industry. Yeah, it's a secondary job. Just finally, Andrew, are you, are you concerned about the state of the festival circuit at the moment? Will we start to see more fall over or will some maybe have they just run their course and will we start to see a new model emerge look i, I think i can only really talk to the um commercialized uh music festivals and in in my opinion my observations over the last you know 30 odd years of working in the industry is that they're very cyclic by their nature so you know they'll change genre or, or whatever um and then there's certain areas uh, that will work and others that won't. So um, I think it was Take That or, or one of those uh, festivals did like 30, upward of 35,000 tickets in Canberra last year, um, yet one of their other regions was cancelled. So I don't know, I can't see any rhyme or reason for it, um, but there's lots of different factors affecting the festivals. And, and one of them is that, yeah, absolutely, they've run their course, um, or they just may have run their course for that particular brand or in that particular area. There's a lot of there's a lot of things contributing mm. to that. Mm. Andrew, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank you. That was Andrew McKinnon there, Chairman of Crew Care. This on the text line, I think you're right about corporate influence. Music ceases to be art and becomes a product under corporate influences. And this in from Rowan, shouldn't the market dictate if a festival survives or not? I suspect that festival goers aren't as interested unless they're super unique. 
So there's plenty of challenges there that we're seeing. And the challenges come at you from all different angles. I Mm. mean, there's this. Remember that small towns, the volunteers that are running the festivals are the same volunteers that are running the CFA, the SES, the school breakfast club, the footy club, the basketball club, the cricket club. Part of the problem is that we have an influx post-COVID of new community members, often part-time, who are not yet sharing that volunteer load with their new communities. We referred back to Rochella, which is going to be happening on the 14th of October. October to help those that are still living through the impacts of the floods and we often see festivals rise to the surface to try and help people through devastating times. Well David Sterling is the former president of the Marysville Tourism. He's also the owner of the motel there and David some of the incredible work and resilience and efforts that were brought together from local communities like Marysville after Black Saturday was incredible. I was there, I was able to be a part and to witness that and music events and festivals is something that still continues to help that area how important is it to, to have things like this yeah thanks for that yeah look i think, I think you know, particularly after 2009 and obviously we we knew and, and realized that obviously events were the only way to basically try and get marital back on the um on the map obviously uh, we know the devastation that was impacted by the town of marital at that point um, so yeah, certainly to bring tourists, um, to bring some people back into the area, certainly um, it was certainly a major uh, decision to, to be made around bringing music festivals and any type of events really um, into the area to try and uh, bring people back to the area and, and recognise what had gone on. What about the uh, the actual residents, David, people who live in Marysville? These festivals are often volunteer-supported and, and done on the you know on the smell of an oily rag sometimes. Does it also yeah, help give a, a, a bit of, like, you know, camaraderie to a town, especially after you've been through something as devastating as natural disasters like that? Um, look, I, I think the short answer is, yeah, we've got a very small population in Marysville, very small community, but a very entwined community within you know the arts festivals um and the alike and certainly brings communities together and i suppose it, it is difficult in particular if you've gone through a disaster because obviously people are still recovering so i suppose it's maybe another way of giving people a chance to uh redirect their focus um and have something else to think about Absolutely. other than maybe maybe the devastation as well but also some of the performers that come into town, you know, some of the well-known people that come into town, um, obviously, you know, give people a little bit of uh, light at the end of the tunnel as well who are coming in to support that town. Um, so certainly they play a major role in um, getting the town back up and rolling and, and, and creating a bit of excitement, which obviously, you know, if you've gone through some sort of disaster, whether it's floods that you're talking about or fires, it's certainly, um, certainly helps the town overall. Absolutely. David, thanks not, so not, much. Not, not, not to mention from a business perspective. Yeah, well, does that's that. right. That's right. I mean, the effects. Yeah, good on you, David. Thank you. David Sterling is the former president of the Marysville Tourism Cooperative and the owner of the Tower Motel in Marysville. The cost is running through really strong on the text line today going to a music festival in regional Victoria. 
It's more than $1,000 for the weekend for a family. Prices are just skyrocketing, says this. The cost of living is going up. It's harder and harder to put money aside. We used to go to Port Ferry and back on a full tank. Now I can barely make it out of my driveway. So there's Mm -hmm. the cost of the tickets. There's the cost of accommodation, if there is any, and then petrol as well. And Marysville, as we just spoke about before, if you're thinking about heading up there, Kate Sobrano will be playing up there as a part of that event in November as well. So you can jump online and have a look around. But Mitch Wilson is the Managing Director of the Australian Festival Association. Mitch, a warm welcome to you. There's been lots of discussion today around whose responsibility is it to ensure that these festivals are viable. Is it up to the the group putting them on, the town, the government? What's not working, do you believe? Good morning and um, thanks for having me on the program. I think, you know, festival organisers are some of the most, you know, creative, entrepreneurial uh, people that I've ever worked with. And I think, yeah, festival organisers are, you know, at the end of the day, responsible for putting on their events. But what we've seen is a major shift in the entire sort of, uh, you know, Uh, industry and landscape for festivals around the country. I think from a Victorian perspective, we have a lot more of the like smaller independent festivals, especially those community run ones. So it's probably uh, having a bit more of a obvious profound effect in Victoria. But like the changes we've seen in supplier costs, you know, sort of 30 to 40, even 50% in some cases across the board on, yeah, some of those uh, supplier costs, whether that's, you know, fencing, toilets, lighting, production, um, food, everything that goes into sort of putting on a successful event. And I think audiences coming out of lockdown are just, you know, uh, not buying tickets as fast as they used to. You know, major festivals used to sell out in hours and days after going on sale and we're just not seeing that anymore. Mm. So there's there's a real shift in audience ticket purchasing behaviour that I think the industry just needs a couple of seasons to sort of work out where that's going to land. And that's why we've been sort of calling for some additional support from government, you know, reduce some of the regulatory costs, but also provide some funding to just partner with us while we try and figure out these changes over the next two summer seasons. But Mitch, do we have a couple of seasons to actually survive this? We're we're hearing colloquially of all of these small festivals that are going up, belly up, in those between times, and for them, a couple of seasons is too late. Are we looking at this and is that just a natural attrition when it comes to events or is a couple of seasons too late for some of those small festivals that just won't exist in a couple of years? I totally agree. I don't think we necessarily have that much time, but I think the, you know, pressures and the changes will sort of be a bit more clear, uh, you know, come next summer or, you know, just after that. But we've already seen, I, you know, know of at least five festivals in Victoria that have announced that they're either not coming back or taking this year off to just really work out the impact of these uh, change in, in sort of, uh, ticket purchasing behaviour, but also, mm-hmm. yeah, to see if the supplier costs come down. We um, particularly are just calling for the, the Victorian government um, at the recent election committed to a live music major events fund, which we 
welcomed wholeheartedly. Um, it's a $2.5 million fund with a maximum grant of $50,000 for festivals that's going to be over the next four years. What we would really love to see is for government to, you know, provide the assistance now, partner with us, have that funding brought forward. So, rather so when than is that due four- to start, Mitch? Well, it was. It's. It's. We're waiting for the guidelines to come out Still. and for applications to open. It's. It's this financial year. But what we've called. What we're calling for is, for maybe do it over over two financial years rather than four, and increase those grants from a maximum of fifty to two hundred or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars because that's sort of the size of the grants that we need to really actually make a, you know, uh, difference to the. And was the consultation, were you happy with the level of consultation and the level of urgency that the Victorian government, I mean, yes, they committed to this live music fund, but if, you know, if you're still waiting for the application process and to know whether or not it's going to run over two years or four years, it feels like it still has some way to go. And as Daniel just said, these festivals are kind of starting to fall over now. Were you happy with the level of consultation and input that, that you had from Festivals Association of Australia? Well, it was an election commitment made prior to the November state election. Um, yeah, the uh, current government sort of made that commitment and uh, said that it was going to start in this financial year. We're, we're uh, hopeful and you know confident that we will get consulted on the guidelines, but I think, yeah, there is a level of urgency to get them out there because if organisers are making a decision around whether to go ahead or whether they're going to have support for the costs like knowing that there's a grant program out there that they can apply for and that maybe after they have applied may come in just just eases the anxiety and provides a bit more confidence for them and mitch just finally the devil's advocate will say if these festivals are falling over it's because there isn't demand and people aren't voting with their feet what's the response to to that position when um and and i guess what happens when these festivals do go belly up and a town no longer has that calling card Oh, I think, you know, the impact of COVID was, you know, uh, vast across the entire economy. Like, this is a quite unique, uh, you know, specific time where we're just looking for a partner in in government and, you know, with the rest of the industry to help us get through this. You know, the Wangaratta Jazz Festival announced recently that they are finishing up. You know, that festival had been going for 30 years. Like, this isn't a uh, necessarily a cyclical or, um, you know, direct impact from, uh, you know, a new place in town. I mean, there are lots of questions around whether or not there are too many, but I guess if if the demand is there, it's just how feasible are they to put on? And it sounds like, Mitch, you and your entire team at the Australian Festival Association, you've you've got some of the solutions and at least some of the, you know, the, the, the ways to work through this. We thank you for your time, Mitch. Good on you. Thanks for having me on the program. Mitch Wilson, the Managing Director there of the Australian Festival Association. I mean, there's a message here from Colin Dan, and it says, well, to summarise, two smaller and good festivals replaced by one huge successful one. That's from mm-hmm. Colin. I actually think it's the opposite. I think what I've sort of learnt from today is hyper-local and localised Every, it takes the village to get yep. on board as well. But at the same time, it does need government support. And we know right from the very beginning of the pandemic, the music industry and the arts felt totally forgotten and left behind. And we are still seeing the repercussions of that now.
Yeah, and it really feels like festival organisers and the people who work with these are just copying it from all angles. If it's not red tape, it's another thing or another thing. And I love these volunteer-run festivals, but like we've been hearing on the text line, they're also volunteering everywhere else. It's... I feel their exhaustion just reading about their exhaustion. (laughs) Dan Miles, as always, thank you. I'll be back with you tomorrow.